Welcome to AgTech 360, where we take a 360-degree view into emerging agriculture technologies of today and tomorrow. Our host, Adrian Percy, helps us to create robust dialogue among stakeholders in academia, industry, and extension, including researchers, growers, producers, and the overall agriculture sustainability community. AgTech 360 is brought to you by North Carolina State University, CIRSA, the Center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, and the Southern IPM Center. So this is uh, Adrian Percy with AgTech 360, and today I'm absolutely uh, delighted to have a very distinguished guest, a distinguished professor at NC State University and the CRISPR Lab lead, Professor Rodolf Marengo. You really have a, had a distinguished career so far, and I, I know you're still young and a lot more to achieve, but already a National Academy Sciences Prize in Food and Agricultural Sciences in 2018. You're the editor-in-chief of the CRISPR Journal, and uh, not only do you have your university professorship, but you're also involved in several ag tech companies, so you have a real entrepreneurial streak, and I know you're on the board of Inari, which is a very interesting uh, ag tech company. But before we talk about gene editing and CRISPR, let's just talk a little bit about you. I'd love to hear kind of your background and how you got from where you were to, to where you are today. Well, thank you, Adrian, for having me today. Um, I'm excited to be here and indeed perhaps a, a non-canonical path in a few ways. So uh, born and raised in Europe, this is where the, the cumbersome a name you correctly pronounce comes from. Um, did some of my schooling there, undergrad and grad studies in engineering, and then for some unexplainable reason, moved to the U.S. in uh, 1998 to pursue a, a career starting an RTP here, as a matter of fact, graduate school as well, master's degree and then a PhD. I was always interested in, in making a real impact. So my first career was in industry. I went to work at DuPont for nine years. Uh, I love the business impetus, the commercial reality, the strategic focus, and generating products that are tangible to the consumers. But even working at a Fortune 50 company at the time, I felt a little bit limited by the agenda and my ability to make a real impact. And it so happened that in 2012, there were some early signs that the CRISPR revolution was upon us. So I decided to leave an R&D directorship in nutrition and health and industry to come back home in academia at NC State and start the CRISPR lab, uh, as you mentioned. And it gave me really a freedom to operate in terms of pursuing science and technologies of interest to me. And then also, as you pointed out with entrepreneurship, gave me the opportunity to pursue business ventures with a little bit more freedom and more risk-taking and more orthogonality than, you know, typical venture capitalists would take or large companies would take. And that's been a very interesting journey at a very interesting time for the ag world, as a matter of fact, and at a very interesting time in terms of technological advances with regards to CRISPR and genome editing. So it's almost those, those things aligned in the perfect storm uh, to lead to where we are today uh, on the cusp of, you know, the next uh, genome editing revolution. Yeah, fantastic. Can you just describe to us what CRISPR really is, what gene editing is, and, and how the two of them are linked to understand the subtleties here? 
So, so CRISPR uh, is an acronym that stands for Cluster Regular Interspatial Palindromic Repeats. So it's an acronym that stands for the CRISPR-Cas immune system that's present in bacteria that is a, a defense adaptive immune system. And it's really interesting. The reason we care and know about CRISPR is because the molecular machinery from those bacterial immune systems is a very powerful technology that is used for genome editing. As a matter of fact, you know, 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry were the technology. So what genome editing is, in the grand scheme of things, is the same thing that we construe as editing if we were an editor at a journal or a newspaper. It's a technology that enables us to change the text, right? And we can do so not just in a book or a paper or a journal, but we can do so in the book of life. And CRISPR enables us to locate the cursor for the editing. So CRISPR is a technology that allows us to geolocate using a molecular scalpel called Cas9, right, the strings of words in a large genome. Control F in your Word document. And once we place the cursor at its location, this molecular scalpel cuts DNA, and we can then alter or edit the DNA sequence precisely at that location. So what CRISPR technology is, as a consequence, is a molecular modality that enables virtually any geneticist anywhere in the world, in any species, to change any DNA sequence we want anyway. We can add a letter, we can add a word, we can add a sentence, we can remove any combination thereof and rewrite the book of life virtually in any organism they can think of on planet Earth. That is incredible. When I think of CRISPR, you know, and you've just described it perfectly, I think of the power of this technology, but also it comes across as a very versatile technology that can be used, as you said, across the animal or plant kingdoms. We've heard examples of teenagers in their bedrooms, you know, doing CRISPR experiments. I don't know if that's true or just um, kind of folklore and uh, urban myth, but it, you, it gives the impression that it's a very, very versatile technology that will become perhaps a very standard that people are able to do in the future, even though clearly the, the science to develop it has been immense. I could not agree more. And one of the reasons why the CRISPR craze has taken over the world so fast is because that technology is portable. It's what I call the democratization of CRISPR, right? In less than 10 years, since the advent of CRISPR technology in 2012 and the first proof of concept that it can be used to edit the human genome in 2013. So in merely nine years, we've gone from a crazy idea, can we use CRISPR to change DNA, to a world where 200,000 labs in nearly 100 countries in all five continents across the globe have been able to repurpose, deploy, and implement that technology at scale and publish 20,000 studies that chronicle the potential of that technology across the tree of life from you know, very small limits of life genetic elements like viruses to simple organisms like bacteria and archaea to complex organisms like livestock and crops and obviously humans and even the largest genomes and organisms on the planet, namely trees. So that portability, that efficiency that has enabled a democratization to the point where high schoolers now do CRISPR experiments in high school. I'm not talking about grad students. I'm not even talking about undergrads at institutions like NC State. I'm talking 
talking about, you know, my kids have CRISPR projects in high school, you know, and you can actually go to the movie theater and hear about CRISPR. You can turn on the news, the evening news and hear about CRISPR. You can check out, you know, the list of top 10 New York Times bestsellers and read Walter Isaacson's book that came out yesterday. You know, CRISPR here, CRISPR there, CRISPR everywhere. That technology has taken over the world by storm and that portable technological uh, access has also been fueled by tremendous applications and ramifications that uh, trigger investments from the industry, that trigger investments from governments, that trigger investments from venture capitalists. You know, there's CRISPR tickers on the NASDAQ and on and on and on. That portability of that technology, I think, has been a game changer because genome editing used to be very limited and hard to access and implement. You needed a big lab, expert geneticists with large budgets and sophisticated material and hard to replicate protocols to be able to deploy this. And now, you know, you can learn to do that in high school. Now, it doesn't mean the average high schooler is going to cure cancer tomorrow or you're going to do a gene therapy at home in your garage. But it means that with the right tools, the right kits... You can do a CRISPR experiment at home in your kitchen and change a bacterium, so to speak. Amazing. I mean, it beats the frogs that I was dissecting at my high school. Before we get into the application of CRISPR, and you've mentioned a kind of few things high level, and again, I'd like to get back to what you were doing in your lab. My understanding is the technology is still not fully developed in terms of the potential that it has, and that there are still many people kind of advancing it, and we're seeing new forms of gene editing technologies, and perhaps it getting even easier to use moving forward. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. So nine years at the timescale of science is very early, right? So think of, you know, the first submarine nine years in, you and I are probably too smart to get in, (laughs) right? The first plane nine years in, the first car, the first space shuttle, the first TV nine years, the first computer, the first phone, a portable phone. I mean, nine years in timescales of science is very early. It's a nine-year-old, right? It needs, it needs to lean out, it needs to smarten up, it needs to be more reliable, it can't throw a tantrum here and there. So nine years is early, but when you look at CRISPR, nine years in, it's gone a lot farther, a lot faster than one would think, but it's still imperfect. So indeed, there's you know thousands of people trying to make those modalities a little bit more specific than they are today, a little bit more reliable and predictable and efficient and less toxic and more portable and on and on and on, more affordable as well and scalable. But that being said, those couple hundred thousand scientists that use it every day that have published you know twenty thousand papers in the last ten years to that effect can attest: yes, it needs to be better, but it's good enough to implement in a number of cases and people who are at the very forefront of that technology have already been able to go into the clinic and have FDA approved trials in the US with people who are deambulating the streets of North America and have had their DNA edited and corrected with CRISPR and lived to speak about. So in this sense, right, saying nine years in, we go from a pipe dream, a crazy idea to a Victoria Gray on NPR sharing her own personal narrative of how her sickle cell disease has been addressed with a single dose of CRISPR is reflecting really how far along we have been. And though the tech needs to be improved, though the technology needs to be further advanced, because it's not quite as perfect as it could, maybe even should be, the fact that the FDA has, I think, 13 currently 
currently enrolling clinical trials underway in the U.S. speaks volumes because the risks are accounted enough, addressed enough, covered enough that we are confident in our ability to deploy that in humans, which then foreshadows by extension our ability to deploy this technology in other organisms, be it trees for forestry, livestock for food, crops for ag, be it in the bacteria that we use in the food supply chain or uh, any species of interest to us. So Rodolf, tell me a little bit about what you're studying in your lab. What is the focus of research going on where you are? Yeah, so the CRISPR lab at NC State primarily works on bacteria of interest to the food and ag industry. So we work on probiotics and starter cultures that are widely used across the food supply chain to provide a healthier, more sustainable, more wholesome food supply, the, the good guys in the bacterial kingdom, so to speak. And what we do is cover the whole spectrum of CRISPR from very basic research, what CRISPR-Cas systems occur, what do they do, how do they function from a molecular standpoint, what roles do they have in vivo, and on and on and on, to really understand the basic molecular underpinning of those molecular machines, all the way to using that scientific knowledge to deploy that as technologies. Can we use those CRISPR-Cas systems to do genome editing? Can we use those CRISPR-Cas systems to do screening, to do phage resistance, to do typing, and manipulate those organisms. And once we have those technologies developed, then we deploy them and apply them towards commercial applications. So can we make this outstanding dairy starter culture that makes the best yogurt or cheese in the world? Can we make that guy resistant to phages that are industrial problems? Or can we use the adaptive immune system of bacteria to understand where bacteria come from, how long they've been around, what good or bad decisions they've made in their lifespan, and can we help decipher their coevolutionary dynamics in their environment? How did they adapt? How did they survive? Where have they been? If you apply that to probiotics, how well do they colonize the human GI tract? How do they scavenge non-digestible elements out of our diet that enable them to survive a very hostile environment with a lot of competition? How can they engraft better or how can they impact our immune system? And all the way to you know helping those developers document the scientific legitimacy of those products for commercial formulations. Do we know exactly what bacteria we use in what food products, to what extent, for what function, and provide confidence in regulators that we know what we're doing, we know what's happening, we know how safe and functional and valuable they are, and thus give them confidence to approve their use in the food realm. So you've touched a little bit on food. When it comes to agriculture, what kind of applications do you believe that CRISPR will really make a difference in? As a matter of fact, I mean, even just before we start on this, I think people need to realize how much more impact we can have by deploying CRISPR in ag than we can CRISPR in therapeutics. So bear with me for just a minute here. I mean, there's about, you know, eight plus billion of us on planet Earth. And if you try to wonder... How many of those people could therapeutically benefit from a CRISPR therapy? I mean, how many of those people are going to have an immunotherapy or gene therapy need? I mean, maybe tens of millions. Maybe we'd be strained to make a case for 100 million, right? 
Now, mind you, saving lives of tens of millions of people is a fantastic endeavor. And I'm involved in a number of companies that do that all day, every day, and I believe it. But in the end, we're impacting the lives of maybe tens of millions of people. Now, if we use that technology and deploy it to feed people, right? We can talk about livestock to some extent, but I think really crops are so much more scalable, so much more sustainable, so much more widespread globally and accessible to a large population. And we hope that the population eats two or three meals a day, all day, every day, year round, throughout the course of their long lifespan, hopefully. If we can use CRISPR to impact farming, the number of people we impact is in the billions, billions. And food is so quintessential to our life and our community, and our society, and our health, and our livelihood, if we can deploy the best technology, arguably, of our generation and enable a revolution in the food and ag world, we'll benefit almost all of humankind. I mean, we can have tens of millions of farmers use those, you know, breeding by editing approaches to address whether it's yields, whether it's pests, whether it's disease, right? There's a lot of things that we could do with it. But when I think of the size of the population that can benefit from CRISPR, I think we have to start with ag and not start with therapeutics. So when you talk about yield and controlling for pests and other things, are there things that are more directly relatable to what we see on our plate in terms of, I don't know, more nutritious food perhaps? So are those the types of applications that you could see with CRISPR as well? Yeah, so so they are indeed. I mean, I think what we would call the classical ag traits, right, of disease resistance and pest resistance and antifungal and fungicides and herbicides and others. I mean, you know, we can use CRISPR to address those classical farmer-focused diseases and issues, same with yield and drought resistance. But I think maybe for today's audience, we can also think of it not just as a farmer, but as a consumer, right? Like what's in it for me? in my plate, on my plate, in my mouth. And I think what we're starting to understand is, you know, we need biodiversity, right? The same one crop with the same one elite genotype with the same one attributes and phenotypes is scalable to some extent, but from a consumer standpoint, boring. It's the same old core number five. It's, you know, maybe a a bigger tomato, maybe a bigger potato, but I don't know, you know, how compelling it is in terms of value proposition. But if you can use CRISPR to kind of bring back that genetic diversity, that biodiversity, and bring traits that otherwise would be invariants that are not commercially elite, that do not have the best, maybe have the best taste, but not the best yield, that maybe have the best color, but maybe not the best growth, that maybe are very sensitive to a bunch of pests, but taste the best in our mouths, right? We can now have the ability to not rely on a very stringent, you know, bottleneck of selecting for yield or selecting for income of selecting for farming or selecting for, you know, this one set of conditions that can scale up. But say we're going to take the very best genes across the species because we now understand genetic diversity using genome sequencing technologies that are now really scalable, really deployable, really insightful in an unprecedented manner at a unprecedented scale. And then say we can now take the best genes across the board, the best genotypes across the board. And rather than wait years and years and years of crossing and breeding season after season after season to get the 
combination that we're dreaming of, we can assemble that mosaic almost at will in the lab. It's not quite that trivial, but opportunities are there. And if we can do that now with CRISPR, and we actually do that not just in a handful of row crops that everybody knows and knows how to work with and manipulate, but we can use those technologies for specialty crops and fruits and vegetables or older versions that have been shelved because, you know, they didn't meet any one screening criterion from a large ad company that is now obsolete. We can really rethink what the future of breeding can be and bring back all this biodiversity. You know, the heirloom tomato is going to live a lot longer and we're going to reopen the true genetic Pandora's box that can end up on our plate. And I like that mesmerizing possibility that is just about to become a reality given that technology. I'm sure people want to know more about this. You mentioned movies and other things that are coming out right now. Where can we get more information around all that's going on in CRISPR and and some of these really amazing applications that you've been mentioning? So for the audience out there that likes to read books, Walter Isaacson's book that came out yesterday, The Code Breaker, and he's a great author, needs no introduction, certainly he's a great resource. Carl Zimmer, Kevin Davis, Hank Greeley, and others have published CRISPR books. So there's plenty of options for you guys to read or listen to podcasts. I think the, the podcast by Kevin Davis and his book is fantastic on audio. And then, of course, for those who don't like to read as much, you know, you can actually watch CRISPR documentaries on Netflix and other streaming devices. As a matter of fact, uh, I was involved to some extent with The Making of Human Nature, a fantastic documentary shot by uh, Adam Bolt, an amazing director that tells the story of the people behind that revolution and not just the applications, but the implications for patients and humanity. And it's a very thought-provoking, very interesting, very intriguing a documentary that will prompt the audience to you know, just learn a lot more about CRISPR, but to think or maybe even rethink about the scientific enterprise and how we can really impact and benefit uh, human health and beyond. Rodolf, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. Really appreciate it. And good luck uh, in all your future research on this really fascinating topic. Thank you very much. And as always, keep calm and crisper on. AgTech360 is a product of North Carolina State University, SIRSA, the Center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, and the Southern IPM Center. This episode was produced by Kayla Pack-Watson with host Adrian Percy and Center Director Dr. Denatia Seth Carley. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at AgTech360 and send us questions and comments to agtech360 at gmail.com. With AgTech360, we take a 360-degree view inside emerging agriculture technologies that matter. Thanks for listening.